Hello, everyone. Welcome to Podbytes. Uh, Dan Delgado is here. Welcome to the show, Dan. Oh, my Welcome. God. Welcome, Jenna, Megan, Elizabeth, Candice, lots of people. Oh, amazing. 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 This is live cast. So please feel free to tune in and type some questions. We're going to get started right now. Great. Hello, everyone. Welcome to PodBytes. I'm Valentina Caladina, and I'm here with my co-host Ariel Nissenblatt. Hi, Ariel. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. We've got a great show. We are live on CastBox every Wednesday, or almost every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Last week, we spoke with John Asante, managing producer at Neon Hum Media. Today's Wednesday, and it's now 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. PodBytes is a live interactive show where we talk about the podcast industry. This is episode number 19. Today, we just want to take a moment to acknowledge that it's been 18 years since the terrorist attacks that occurred in the U.S., on September 11th, 2001. Thank you to the responders, the, the first responders, the police, the firefighters, and the regular civilians who risked their lives to save others that day. This is livecast, everybody, so please feel free to participate. For questions and comments, please call or text. It'll be great to hear from you throughout the show. In PodBytes, we invite investors, podcasters, and other key opinion leaders to share their insights into the podcast industry. The show is recorded live and uploaded as a podcast episode afterwards. You can engage with other listeners and guests by dialing in or writing comments in real time. You can also send virtual gifts to the host to support the show. You can find previous episodes of the show in replace. Just go to CastBox and search for PodBytes. And now we are available on all other platforms, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and wherever you are getting your podcasts. Hopefully on CastBox. On yes. our previous episode, we interviewed John Asante, managing producer at Neon Hum Media. We spoke about his career starting out in public radio at WNYC in New York, his own independent podcast, which is called Play It Back, and his current role at a new media company in Los Angeles called Neon Hum. He gave lots of advice to new podcasters, and we even spoke about his hobby of waking up at 5 a.m. to run and how it relates to podcasts. In a few minutes, we will talk to Brian Scordato, who is a founder of Tacklebox Accelerator and a host of the Idea to Start a Podcast. But before we start, let's chat a bit about what's going on in podcast news this week. First piece of news from Pod News: 40.2% of new shows on Libsyn in quarter two of 2019 were hosted by women. This is according to Rob Walsh, speaking on The Feed, Libsyn's industry-focused podcast. Also from Pod News, Podchaser is enabling its new social feed, sending out access keys to those that signed up for early access. The feed is a brand new social timeline that leverages Podchaser's unique database to feature real-time guests' appearance, recent reviews, new releases, and much, much more. Head to podchaser.com to learn more. And last, a recommendation. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably love podcast industry news. Inside Podcasting is a daily newsletter that uncovers the top stories in the podcast world. And now, Sky Pillsbury, one-time guest on PodBytes and writer of Inside Podcasting, is hosting a podcast by the same name. She interviews podcast creators about the shows they produce. She spoke with Ian Chillog about creating Everything is Alive, and she's got a lot more amazing guests on the roster. Make sure to check it out. All right. Now we'll jump into the interview. Today we are joined by Brian Scordato. 
Brian founded the Tacklebox Accelerator in 2015. Following years of starting companies and working in venture capital, he writes popular posts for Fast Company, runs innovation seminars internally at companies like GE and Indeed, and teaches at General Assembly. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Thank you for joining. Really appreciate in this show, we are talking to different people who are involved in podcasting. You do your own podcast, which is pretty recent. We'll talk about that in details later on on the show. Also, you're creating a bunch of helpful content, and this is a niche content for those who are interested in entrepreneurship and startups. But let's start with your main gig, which is Tacklebox Accelerator. How did you come up with the idea, and what is your niche? Sure. That's a great way of positioning the question, because when I talk to my founders, um, and I'll, I'll tell a little bit about what we do, I always push really, really hard on what is the niche that you're going after. Um, it's so, so important. So backing up a little bit, um, Jackalbox came about, as you mentioned, I'd started a couple of companies uh, in the past. And I was kind of the friend who, if I had a friend or a friend of a friend who had a startup idea, I'd always wind up out to coffee with them. And they'd say like, oh, I've got this day job, I'm a lawyer, but I have this startup idea and I'm obsessed with it and I just don't know how to start. And so I would meet a bunch of people who had startup ideas and they also had full-time jobs. And basically they were, they were just curious as to how they could pursue this idea and maybe see if it was a good idea or not uh, before they made this huge decision to leave their job and pursue it full-time. And so I kind of came up with this thesis that there were a lot of people who should be starting companies but aren't because of the opportunity cost. So uh, I, I think there are a couple of facts that people people don't recognize that like new companies are at like a 30 or 40 year low. Like there, there are fewer companies today started than there were in 1970. Um, so despite all these tools, people aren't starting new companies. So that's sort of where uh, Tacklebox came in is we want to work with founders with full-time jobs who have startup ideas and help them through this initial, like really tough counterintuitive first couple of months to figure mm -hmm. out, is there something here? Is this worth my time? Right. Right. Are you doing the accelerator on your own or do you have partners? So I'm, I'm the only founder. Um, we've sort of built a team around um, various parts of the accelerator that where, where we need help. So there's, there's uh, a woman named Anna Shree who's indispensable, who helps with all the operations and things. And, but we've assembled a crew of mentors and advisors and investors and people who aren't full-time, but are always around and helpful because we work with anybody. So we'll get like everything from clothing brands to bakeries, to an airplane that's going to run on electricity, like all sorts of crazy stuff. So we need to have a really deep bench of people with expertise. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So you are saying that this program is for founders or for people who have an idea and who are at pre-seed stage and who still have the daily jobs. This sounds mm -hmm. yeah. This sounds really sexy and find uh, <laughs> I find it a great selling point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just overlooked. So if you think about who is going like the resources that can help you if you have a startup idea, there are like people think, oh, I'm going to raise money from a venture capitalist or an angel investor, or I'm going to get into Y Combinator or another accelerator program. But all of those resources, they don't want to have that much risk. So these founders think that that's like the first step. Um, but there's so much 
before that, that that you have to do and the resources, this sort of first level of resources require you to have so much done that it's really hard to do on your own. I, I always think about it like people say, oh, if you're an entrepreneur, you should just be able to figure that stuff out innately, which is ridiculous. It's like going up to someone on the street and saying like, oh, you you should be a doctor. So take out that person's appendix. Like you still need to go to medical school. <laughs> um, so I, I think about it that way. I see. Yeah, indeed. So many people want to escape from the corporate world, but they are not always ready for the challenges that they might face when they are launching their own business. In reality, how many of them, how many corporate people are normally joining the, the accelerator? Sure. So we've had uh, about 250 founders come through. Mm -hmm. um, so our accelerators we run, we do them really, and, and we try and keep it small. So I think that like, The best way for these things to work early on is with a lot of hands-on help and strategic work. And um, so we keep it to like eight to 10 founders per batch, which are the batches are all about seven weeks long. And everything we do is nights and mornings and weekends so that people can keep their full-time job, work on their idea in the margins. We give them the structure to move forward and then they move forward. But I think the question you might be getting at is how many people actually quit their jobs and start companies um, um yeah no before that <laughs> I'm, i'm just curious are you saying that 100 of uh, the people that you enroll into the program are they 100 of them are corporate people i would say about 80 percent um, uh -huh. the, the vast majority and we do get a fair amount of people who like, like for example so we're based in new york so we'll get a bunch of people who were working at like a retail company or a fashion company and get laid off not because they're not capable just because the industry's in trouble. And then we can scoop someone like that up with great domain expertise and, and help them build something. Mm, I see. Yeah. And uh, obviously I'm interested in how many of them quit their corporate jobs. So that's, that's the number that's like written on my wall. I'm so proud of it. We've, oh. we've got about 40% of our founders end up quitting their job within the next year. Oh, that's not bad. My God. I think the rate is uh, even better than you have after the business school. Interesting. So one of the questions that you are asking them is, oh, maybe we can start from the main questions that you're asking them. Sure. I always think that founders, and if you have a startup idea, and I, most of us do, the way that I would think about it is first think about yourself and think about yourself in terms of, I like to get a big piece of paper and draw a bunch of circles. And those circles represent your networks, your skill sets, your like unique or specific knowledge that you've got. And so you draw a bunch of circles. And so you could say, maybe if you went to business school, you can have a circle that says finance, but the size of that circle should relate to how unique or special that skill set or knowledge base is. So if you go to business school, that circle is probably not all that big because a lot of people have gone to business school. But if you were like the best, you were the, the number one cellist in the, in the Boston Philharmonic, then your circle for being a cellist is really, really big. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is to start to combine those circles. So like one of my favorite founders of all time that came through Tacklebox is a woman named Jess. And she had really, really short hair. So like a pixie type haircut. Mm -hmm. And she understood that type of customer really well. She also understood the salon industry and she understood like the social media landscape really well. 
And if you put those things together, you get a customer that is underserved by current salons because it's way too expensive to cut your hair as frequently as she would have liked to um, because the salon charges the same amount. Yeah. Uh But if you go to a a barbershop, it's not welcoming and it's not as good of a haircut. So you sort of have that really unique knowledge of this very specific customer pain point that's very important. And then she understood that customer well enough that she could say they actually, this customer talks to each other all the time. Cause when you, you can visually see who else has that type of a haircut and then you say, Hey, where'd you get your haircut? So she recognized that this would be a type of company that could grow quickly. So she came up with a subscription hair salon services for women with really short hair. Mm-hmm. And I think about like, if I had tried to start that company, it'd obviously be a disaster because I don't have that knowledge base. So really what we're looking for is like founders with very specific knowledge of a very important problem that maybe most people would overlook or would never come in contact with. Okay, so you normally ask them three main questions. So you ask them why you, why now, and why at all? Why do you think these questions are so important? So in terms of those three questions, the why you, why now, and why at all, I think they are critical. And I think the biggest one you need to ask is the why you. I just think that these businesses are built and you mentioned the niche earlier and that's that's like that's the key is you need to have specific knowledge that is not something that I would call like a commodity. So we get tons of startups that are in like the travel space or the food space or the dating space and that's that's fine but those are ideas that anybody could come up with so then you think that like then your differentiator becomes how well you can execute on something like that. And that's just generally not a pool that you want to swim in. The why you question is really like, why are you the best person in the world to start this thing? Why have you been subconsciously preparing for this startup your entire life? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the big one. So like, what have you been doing? What's the knowledge or network you've been amassing that other people haven't? The why now question is important because most of the time you're not going to be the first person to think of whatever idea you've come up with. And something's changed that would make the idea relevant now when Mm -hmm. before it wasn't. So like that could be technology, that could be just general sentiment, that could be a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then why it all is an important one. That's sort of an introspective one where you got to look in the mirror, you got to look in the mirror and say like, do people actually care about this? Is this a problem that people actually really need solved. And that can be tough because I really think that for the most part, you're not going to go. So, so I think a fun exercise is to think like, what's the next new thing, truly new thing that you actually bought. So like, you know, a new restaurant is not really like you're still eating food. I'm talking about like a new thing. There just aren't a lot of them. So the bar is pretty high in terms of how big of a pain point you're solving for someone to try something new. So it needs to be really, really, really important and not iterative to their life. I see. The reason why we are talking to entrepreneurs and people who are coming from venture capital industry on this show is because this is very relevant and the experience is very relevant to the podcasters. And uh, many of our listeners are podcasters who are looking to either to start their own podcast or they already have the podcast and they want to grow so this advice uh, i think this is really relevant to them but later on if 
people want to grow. For example, let's look at your at an example of the Tacklebox Accelerator. So the first question that you are asking is why you? So what if the person is able to prove that he or she is amazing, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the person has a team around him or her. Do you help to solve it? To help solve if they're if they don't have a team? Yeah, in most of the cases they probably need a team. Almost all of the cases, and that's one of the yeah. hardest things. Uh-huh. And I, the way that I think about it is you need to make sure that the what you're hiring for, the team that you're building, does what I think of as a commodity. So, like, I actually think of tech as, as a commodity. Basically, anything, unless you're building, like, a hoverboard, has been built before. And, and most products are tech-enabled, which means that you can probably get something built by someone who, who doesn't need to be like an incredible person, you could potentially outsource the thing. So that's actually, and this might, this might not be the most popular approach, but the approach that I've pushed on a lot of our founders, and it, it is case by case, but is to actually figure out during Tacklebox, how can we prove or validate that there is enough of something here, a customer need and a solution that'll help them that we can either start getting money from customers so that we can be profitable and then potentially outsource a team before hiring full-time. Or you can prove enough that you can raise maybe a small round of funding, maybe friends and family, if that's something that's available, maybe like a small angel round, maybe like win some grants. There are a lot of different ways to get money that isn't, you know, VC money, and then take that money and basically hire a team to scale the thing that you've started to build. So like the way that I think about the team is what is the thing? So everyone sort of defaults to like, I need a CTO or I need whatever. And the the bigger question to ask is like, what problem am I trying to solve within my company? And if the problem is like vision based, then you definitely need a person. If the problem is just scaling something that's not scalable, then I don't think that you necessarily need to start building out your team. And those are the types of founders that we look for. So, So that's kind of the approach that we take. But building out a team is incredibly challenging. And I'm sure you've heard a lot about all the analogies about it's like marrying someone and all that. So it's mm-hmm. it's tricky. Does it happen sometimes that the guys who are enrolled in the program, they start businesses together? That has happened. And it's, it's very cool when it does. And I think that, like, I've been trying to solve this problem that you're talking about for a long time. I've been mm-hmm. thinking about it, like, how do I get good founders? It's a really tricky one. And uh, we actually, so what, what we'll do now is we'll have a founder. So right now we just recently had a founder and, and she's been doing really well and she needs a team and she's more recent through Tacklebox. And so I'll just send a note to all of our past Tacklebox uh, alumni who are not working on their startup full time and say like, hey, this is the place that she's at. This is what she needs. Reach out if you're interested in joining the team. And that's that's actually worked a few times, um, which has been great and is, is something that you know, as we scale might become a good option. Wow, that's a a nice way to solve the problem. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. Um, It's a it's such a tough one. It's so hard. Yeah, but I mean, it makes sense. Uh, So the idea is behind Tacklebox is to give enough tools and to give kind of preparation uh, to the people who want to start. And it's like preliminary stage before people have to, you know, start scaling and hiring a team. So yeah, that's, that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I believe that you are industry agnostic, but still, I believe that you have more people from e-commerce, if I'm not mistaken, in the the accelerators. So 
how does it work if you if the guys who are interested to launch product or service in the industry that you're not familiar with like software for drilling or mm -hmm. what is really popular these days cbd products and yeah. like let's say you guys don't have previous expertise in that so how do you work with this kind of founders Yeah, it's a great question. I think I have, there's like sort of two answers to it. First, I think that most companies, no matter what they're working on or what industry, the first three, four months look really similar. You're basically trying to figure out who is my customer? Who's this tiny initial customer that is going to go out of their way to try something because this problem that they have is so intense? And then next step, like how do you message that? What is the messaging that you can use that'll get people to jump off their butt and like try something? What is the acquisition channel that you're going to leverage that is going to be unique and niche enough that your message is going to get through? No matter what industry you are in or working on, the process is going to be very similar. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to figure out who your customer is. You are going to have to figure out what's the messaging that'll get them exciting, that'll get across the value prop you're offering. You've got to figure out the correct channel for that that's going to be niche enough that will allow you to reach them directly without a lot of noise. And then you got to figure out call to action and what the initial offering will be and see if they'll pay for it. And that's going to be pretty standard across industries. Where nuances come in is where like we've got a CBD company in the current batch. There's another one in the, in the next batch. Mm -hmm. um, and they just have, like you probably would anticipate, unique challenges where they like they can't right now advertise on Facebook, which is a mm -hmm. channel that we leverage. There's like trouble with banks. There's all sorts of stuff. So basically, I just ask, like, is this an industry that I want to dive deep on and learn a lot about or not? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you? Yeah. So CBD is really, really interesting to me and anything I'm, I'm very interested in consumer. So like, I think business like B2B, like you mentioned, like drilling, that would be way out of my purview. And I wouldn't be able to learn about that. But I think a lot of the consumer stuff is super interesting to me because I think one of the best things we do is branding and like marketing. So that's, I probably won't turn down very many consumer or B2C type companies. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your curriculum. Uh, and mm. we don't have much time left and we still want to talk uh, more about your podcast. But before we talk about the podcast, I want to talk about one thing related to the curriculum. So mm -hmm. uh, about a couple of years ago, you had a chance to be exposed to YC. And mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, what are the three key learnings that you were able to get from that experience? And how did you implement it into your own business, into the curriculum? Sure. So I think the first thing that sort of smacks you in the face is how smart and driven and capable a lot of people are. And so you sort of see like, here's the level that you need to be at to be a successful company or like one of the, the companies that come out of YC, they're successful. You um, mean there are other founders of the companies? Yes. Of other yes. Uh -huh. okay. and, and even like the alumni who come around and talk and that sort of thing, it's just like, it is just overwhelming how much smarter these people are than you, or at least than me. So what I tried to translate, how I translated on the curriculum is I always think about extraordinary versus ordinary. And I think that our instincts are generally ordinary. So it's like, okay, I want to apply to Y Combinator and you're a startup and you're like, I want to get in. What 99% of people will do is they'll just throw in an application and hope. 
And that's what ordinary people do. And ordinary does not get extraordinary results. So what you have to do is say, like, what would an extraordinary person do in this situation? And they would probably reach out to all of the partners at YC and try and get a coffee or a call with them. They would reach out to 50 alumni and try and get recommendations from them. They would like, I don't even know what, but they wouldn't just put in an application. And so we try and translate that to particularly marketing because it's so easy to build a product these days. You can like the customer acquisition channels, the obvious ones are flooded. So we need to think like, okay, what an ordinary person would do with a consumer brand is put up Instagram ads and a Facebook page and like a good, a well-branded, you know, millennial type landing page with a succulent on it. And that's, that's fine, but that's not going to get you, that's not going to get you extraordinary results. So we really, really push on things that are different. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a big part of our curriculum. The next thing was focus. Wait, wait a second. So you probably, sure. are you saying that you have special courses on creativity? Yes. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time on, so, so it's, wow. it's kind of interesting the way the curriculum goes. We spend a ton of time on storytelling, on messaging, on creative copy and creative acquisition channels. I, I just think that that's like ridiculously important because it's too expensive to just play in the Facebook ads world or the Instagram ads world. Mm. Um, okay. The probably the next one is yeah. focus. The companies that grew the fastest were definitely the ones, and this is counterintuitive, but the ones that had the tightest focus on a customer and had like the smallest, narrowest customer segment. And if you said like, who's your customer? It was like demographic plus psychographic and a very specific group of people that almost felt like, like, Oh, that's impossible. That's too small to be your customer. Um, And they were able to grow incredibly fast and then move to adjacent customer segments. So we, we try and push that in our curriculum too, is like we focus on what we call SOMs, which are serviceable, obtainable markets. And we just push and push and push on like every single test that we run. We're trying to remove customers, not add customers until mm-hmm. we get down to this like little polished core of who our perfect person is. And then probably the third would be a negative about YC actually which is catches people by surprise often. Um, But you have to remember that they're looking for billion dollar companies. Uh And I think most companies aren't that. So they push you to grow at a pace that is not sustainable for most companies, but for the companies that can potentially sort of handle it, they could be huge, huge billion dollar companies. And maybe they won't get to that without this type of pressure. Mm -hmm. But for most, but for most companies, and I think like, Maybe if people watching the show have startup ideas and then they read some stuff about YC, about how they teach you how to build something, I actually don't think it'll be great advice for most people because I think they try and push you to to just like grow at this breakneck pace and and try and raise money as fast as you can and that sort of thing. And that's that's just not the not reality for most people. So what we do in our curriculum is we spend a lot of time on business model and think about like, what is your actual... What are, what are you like? What type of company do you want to create, and what does a business model look that look like that's appropriate for that? And we sort of work backwards from profit. So we start with profit, and then say like our price will come from profit because that's the type of profit that we need to grow without spending all of our lives trying to fundraise. Which I think is a different approach, just because I saw how it burned out some companies there. Right. Okay, interesting. Yeah, interesting. So YC is not probably not uh, for everyone. 
we all are curious to talk more about creativity and content-related stuff. Cool. On this show, we usually talk a lot about podcast content, and you started your podcast earlier this year. Yeah, let's dive deep into it. So uh, you started your podcast, Idea to Startup, in April. How long had you been planning it, and what went into the planning process? I've been thinking about it for probably two years, <laughs> and um, I decided to do it uh, maybe two months before I started. And what went into the process was I just made a, a list of all the people that I thought were the, the founders that I thought would be really interesting to interview. And I made a list of like 10 stories that I really wanted to tell. And then I started pitching it to the founders of the companies to see if they would be okay with me interviewing them. Oh, nice. So it was uh, more of a, you thought of the content first before you thought of the process or the formatting or anything like that? Yeah, I thought, um, and this kind of goes back to the YC stuff. I think people always hear from founders who have raised money. So I found a bunch of founders that had awesome companies that had not either never raised money or hadn't raised money for years. Oh, wow. And so I wanted to hear those stories, both like selfishly, because I think it's super interesting. And then also because I think it would make an interesting podcast. Yeah. Podcasts are the best way to have an excuse to talk to people who you would not normally be able to. It's amazing, right? Yeah. <laughs> when else would I get to talk to Brian Scordato? <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, had, I, you, had you ever had a podcast prior to this? Had you um, ventured at all in that area? No, but I had written a bunch for Fast Company and, and my for Tacklebox, basically every workshop is probably 45 minutes to an hour of content first. Mm -hmm. um, so those are like basically structured like a podcast might be already. So I didn't think the lift would be all that hard. And I was totally wrong about that. But uh -huh. that's yeah, I, I started. Think, um, Cy Pillsbury, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, just started a podcast as well. And I think her biggest takeaway was that it was much harder than she expected it to be. And after um, months and months of reviewing other podcasts, it was kind of a slap in the face as to what actually goes into creating your own, you know? So um, I think it's pretty interesting that you alternate between interviews and then solo episodes yeah, where you kind of tell a story. What was the thought process behind that choice? So I don't know. Are you familiar with Seth Godin at all? A little yeah. bit. He is, I think, like one of the most inspirational and best storytellers I've come in contact with from afar. And I just mm -hmm. thought it was amazing how he, he does a podcast weekly and he just talks. And I thought that mm -hmm. was like the most compelling, interesting thing. I thought I had some stuff to say, but I also, my dream long-term is to get into more content stuff. Like I'd love to write a book. I'd love to write a movie. Um, so I was like, all right, let's see if I can tell stories once, once every couple of weeks. So that was really a big reason for that. And it's interesting, my advice, so it's, it's really hard, like for me at least, it, it's just hard to pull it all together and okay. it takes a long time. But our metrics are, not, it's not even close. Like our metrics for those episodes are so much better than for the interviews. So I think what? it is worth it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's the cool. episode that I just listened to today was the episode where you talk about having a story and how a company that has a story does so much better than a company that does not. And I think mm -hmm. that actually, you're saying that just actually speaks really highly of that anecdote because sometimes when you're interviewing, it's not always a linear path that doesn't have a clear beginning, middle and end. And um, people don't always feel a resolution at the end of it. 
But yeah. when you tell a crafted story, yeah, I guess I guess people really resonate with that. So it does make yeah. sense. You can own it a little bit more. And some harsh feedback I got about the interviews was like, basically like someone told me that there are plenty of people doing a pretty good job of, inter- mm. of interviewing pretty interesting people. And then they said, but there's no one else doing exactly what you're doing because it's coming straight from you. And I was right. like, oh, that's, that's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. Right. Anybody can ask the questions that you're going to ask to your interviewee, but not everybody can craft a story about honeybees and your specific dog. (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing because I think we, we do talk to a lot of podcasters who kind of do things along the norm and it is cool to um, play with the formatting. Can I take a question from Dan Delgado? Dan Delgado in the chat, he's, uh, he's asking, did Brian do anything to publicize his podcast? Hmm. So that is, I mean, that is the hardest thing. Um, I didn't, I don't have anything good for you. I, we tried a few things that haven't necessarily worked all that well. What's worked really well is I already have a, a newsletter. Um, let me just answer Ashton. She asks, what's a pod bite? It's a great question. Pod bites are little pieces of podcast knowledge that we like to share with you through interviews with amazing people in the podcast industry. Today, we are interviewing Brian Scordato, and we just asked him a question that he's about to answer. Do you do anything to publicize your podcast? Yeah, no, nothing great. Um, I'm thinking about, so back to the ordinary and extraordinary thing. I think that all the ordinary things I've tried and they haven't worked. So like, doing a feature on someone else's podcast, all sorts of advertisements in various places and newsletters. I I don't have. So the one thing that's been helpful is having our guests blast out when I interview them to, you know, spread it to their network. But again, I I don't have anything great there. I'm, I'm searching. I'm sure guests will have better answers than what I've got. No, I understand that. And it, um, I think a lot of people are having trouble with marketing. There's so many podcasts and how can you possibly stand out from the crowd? But um, it's helpful to know that even somebody who has a company behind you, behind them and who has a board that behind that company um, also has trouble with the marketing. Uh, we're kind of all, all in this boat together. There are tons of business slash startup focused podcasts. How do you feel yours differs from all of those? It's a great question. What I tried to do early was differentiate based on that. We interview founders who haven't raised money thing. Mm-hmm. And no one cared, honestly. Um, it <laughs> it just didn't resonate. Um, I should have tested it better. What immediately became clear is that like people liked the interviews because they were somewhat interesting, and people liked the individual uh, stories. So I think that that's got to be my niche: is that I do these shorter, entertaining story type, story driven podcasts that are hopefully more actionable than most interviews. Yeah. I think that's true from the bit that I've listened to it. What so far, what's been the most valuable lesson that you've learned from your guests? Oh man, there's been so many. I think the best one that sticks with me the most is from a founder of a company called Baron Fig, which his name is Joey Cafone, a really interesting guy. And it was all around messaging. And he basically said he thinks about his customers that they have this, what he calls an attention pie, which is this pie graph. And that is what they can focus on. And so he sells these like beautiful notebooks. They're not handcrafted, but they're, they're just like so much nicer than most notebooks. They have like a felt cover. They lay flat, dot grid. The pen, it's just, they're just beautiful. And he does all of these things. He was a designer. So he's like, has all of these niceties. And he said he can't mention them 
because if he says that they lay flat and they have a dot grid and they're felt and they're, they don't smudge or whatever it is, that attention pie of the customer is going to get diced up and every message is going to be devalued and nothing's going to come across as interesting enough to create some action. Hmm. Um, so he says it's like, it's like pulling teeth, but he has to pick like one thing that he's going to focus on. So it becomes harder to pick that one thing, but it's like, it's like the discipline of being able to have a very clear marketing channel, uh, yeah. marketing message. Yeah, we talk about that all the time when it comes to podcast promotion and marketing. I think a lot of people have the issue where at the end of their episodes, they say, you know, you can catch us on this platform, that platform, this platform, mm-hmm. that platform, and you can follow us on this social media place, that social social media place. And I think to the listener, their thoughts are, okay, but which one should I do? And then they end up doing none of them. So I think that's definitely a big takeaway. And um, yeah, focus on one. (laughs) So that you're not dividing up the attention chart too much, right? Yeah, and there was another one along the lines of that that was really good that was like, people don't actually want choice. We think that they want choice, yeah, Yeah, but they they don't. They just wanna be told what to do. Yeah, Um, there was an episode of, I forget which podcast, but it talked about how in like the 70s and 80s, there started to be like hundreds of different types of spaghetti sauces and nobody <laughs> wants that. Why, why do we need so many? <laughs> yeah. People want you to be an expert in something and then to tell them what to do. They don't want to mm-hmm. give, they don't want you to give them choices. So like removing, so I think about, there's a quote that I think about all the time. It's basically like perfection is not when there's nothing left to add so when there's nothing left to remove and you're like you're just taking stuff away um that's sort of the goal of this stuff and i've heard that from a lot of founders so going off of that point what is the through line that you hear from guests um, when it comes to advice that they have what do most of them like to tell you that, that has contributed to their successes i think a lot of it stems from really like some sort of domain expertise but also just incredible grit if people decide to listen to the podcast and I hope they do, there's an episode with a woman named Catherine Krug who started this company called better back. And the amount of grit and drive that she has is just like unbelievable. And basically what she does, she talks about, and this is, this is, I'm getting to kind of the answer. She talks about essentialism a bunch. And she basically says that like 99% of things don't matter. And 1% of things do. And so, so when like matter, like, so it's not the the Pareto 80, 20 thing, it's like way more extreme than that. So what she does is she just figures out how to test 10 times as many options as most people do, and then go deep on one tenth as many, but she finds that 1% and you have to have an enormous amount of grit for that. But she basically prides herself on trying more things than anybody else ever will. And that allows her to, to find the one thing. Yeah. It's cool. She's, that was one of the best. She's incredible. What kind of things does she try? I want to be like her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, she's the highest grossing female Kickstarter founder ever. She tried basically all these marketing channels for Kickstarter. And basically she would set herself a goal every day. So, so first she did all sorts of research on Kickstarter and learned that the way to get promoted, at least back then, wasn't how much money, get promoted by Kickstarter, wasn't how much money you raised. It was how many donors you had. Uh, so she created a $2 donor option to boost that number. And she basically wouldn't go to sleep each night until she had 200 new $2 donors. Whoa. 
Um, so she would, she made these lists of hundreds of things that she could do and would go down the list and just try all of them trying to piece together. And so she had this kind of cool core metric of how many new $2 donations that she could get. So it became this really cool thing. And then she would just, I can't, I can't even remember the specifics. A lot of them are in the podcast. She, I couldn't even keep up during the podcast. My head was exploding, wow. um, mm-hmm. but she, she had all sorts of things. It was cool. That's great. Kind of going in the opposite direction from the question I just asked, have you ever disagreed with your guests when it comes to um, the way to handle a startup or startup theory or the process that it takes to bring a startup from the startup phase to, I don't know, a successful business model? Uh, Yeah, fair amount. And I never know if I'm right or not. (laughs) Uh, I think a big thing in the startup world is survivorship bias. Mm -hmm. And basically that for, for people who don't know, that's just basically like the people who make it through for whatever reason, think that what they did is the right way or the only path. And a lot of times they'll overweight things that they did. So like if I get promoted today and I had an omelet for breakfast, I might say like, we'll have an omelet for breakfast and you'll get promoted. That's (laughs) obviously that's an extreme, an extreme example. But I think a lot of that stuff happens where it's like, you shouldn't market for the first two years because I didn't market for the first two years and we took off anyway. And it's like, okay, well that's not that. I don't know if that's causal or what. So there have been a lot of situations like that where people have a strong opinion on particularly like methods for growth, whether it's raising a friends and family round or like, you know, quitting their job at a certain time, things like that, where they make a hard and fast decision on something. And it's like, well, that's, I don't think that that's necessarily right. I have, I'm yet to disagree with somebody on the podcast. I know that that's probably what I should do, but I, I haven't done it yet. One day. You can work up to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got a question here. Brian, you have your network of mentors, of advisors who work with the startups uh, during the accelerator program. And also you have your network of guests or pool of guests that you are going to invite to join the podcast. How much do they overlap, these two networks? Mm. Um, I've actually tried to not have them overlap because as we were talking about earlier, it's like a really easy way to get new people in your network. So I haven't really overlapped. I haven't interviewed a founder yet from Tacklebox. I haven't interviewed a mentor yet from Tacklebox either, actually. I think it's if you're considering starting your own podcast, I think it's worth it just for that, just because it's an incredibly easy you know, I reached out to founders of big companies and I send their PR message and say, would they like to appear on the show? And they say, yes, when can we do it? And it's like, holy crap, this person wouldn't just go out and grab a coffee with me, but they're going to give me an hour and a half now. So I haven't overlapped yet. I'm just using it as a way to like build out that network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. And then um, we like to ask our, we, we like to ask the people that we interview that the podcasts that inspire them. So for you, I imagine it was a bunch of business podcasts, but what are some podcasts that are non-business podcasts that you've, um, that you've taken some inspiration from over the years? Sure. I actually don't love most business podcasts. I, so my favorite podcast of all time is Marvel Wolverine. I don't know if anyone's ever listened to that. Um, I just think so. Yeah, I think it's like, it's a really cool medium for that type of podcast. But other other ones, I'm sure people listen to Revisionist History. I think that Malcolm Gladwell is one of the most brilliant storytellers I've ever come across. I think it's just amazing. I listen to every episode probably three times. Yeah, because I think it's just a cool thing of like, 
he, so you listen to an episode of his and it's sort of like, okay, cool. That was an interesting episode on whatever racism, but he has at any given time, three or four different story stories, like coming together, weaving the narrative. Yeah. And he's always got a hero's journey. If you, if you listen, there's always that like hero's journey archetype going on which is so cool. So like I try and figure out, cause I know that he sits down and does that. So it's like, what are the players in this archetype for this week? Like, what is the storytelling? What are the, the methods that he's using? Like, where is he using little cliffhangers? When is he bringing stuff back? Like that stuff's so cool to me. So he's definitely one. I think if anyone's listened to Naval Ravikant, he's doing some interesting stuff where he will, he will basically send out tweets and if a tweet gets a lot of traction, he'll then make a podcast about it. But it'll be like a five-minute podcast where he just explains what he meant. I think that's super interesting. Um, I think the, the other ones I listen to are really, I just like the people and how they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And it almost becomes, I'm sure you have podcasts like this where it's its just like weirdly comforting to hear their voice every week. Yeah, they become your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is which is a really cool thing. For me, that used to be a podcast called Stratechery with Ben Thompson, and I'm blanking on the other guy's name. What happened to it? They stopped doing it, right. and that was, that was upsetting. Yeah, that's always the worst. It's like you lost a friend. <laughs> yeah, really was. My all-time favorite podcast, by far, the one that I've listened to the most, is uh, How Did This Get Made? The, yeah. Not How I Built This, the NPR one, the How Did This yeah. Get Made, the one where they talk about bad yeah. movies. Yeah, I think those are the... Those are the main ones I listen to, but I'm really always open to new stuff if you guys have favorites. Um, and then I listen, I'll try and seek out episodes with people that I really like. So I'm a big James Clear fan. So when he's on anything, I'll listen to it. Same, obviously, with Seth Godin and a few others. Well, got it. Well, we've got a few more questions from our listeners right now. And then I think we're going to have Valentina ask you a question. So real quick, Natasha, who is typing in on our live cast right now. She says, do you think podcasts are increasing in popularity or are they on their way out? Yeah, I think um, I've heard this sort of thing a lot. Like I've heard people say, well, why'd you start a podcast now? Like podcasts are over. What? Um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's preposterous. I think we're in like inning one of a nine inning game. Oh yeah. I think there's a lot of space left. Things haven't even shaken out yet. Like if you look at, how the networks are shaking out, like what networks have podcasts and that sort of thing, like who's getting syndicated, like whatever it may be. Spotify has just bought Anchor and a few other, like there's the infrastructure hasn't even happened yet. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what percentage of people listen to the podcast in the U.S., but it's small. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of growth left. Um, Yeah. And then we have a question from Mr. Bub. But before we ask your question, Mr. Bub, who is also typing in on the live A reminder that since we're live right now, we can receive gifts and we do love gifts when you show us that you like our show. So please feel free to let us know that you like us through some gifts. Mr. Bub wants to know, do you send official invites to potential interviews or do you just call them? So uh, how do you go about asking for your interview? What I do is I'll try and put together like a quick, so I don't, I don't really do the spray and pray thing. I'll try and put together like a thoughtful email that is, so a lot of the people I've spoken with are going to, they'll have already done either podcasts or shows or something. So I'll listen to their story that they've told. And I'll say something like, you know, you touched on this in this interview, you touched on this in this interview. I think it, like my audience is very early stage. I think it'd be really cool to go deep on something like this. And then I'll, and then I'll have the ask. So it like, it seems 
like it's very much I'm choosing them to be on the podcast because there's something really unique. And then if they don't answer, I'll send them a, a tweet or something like that or LinkedIn. And a lot of times if you send it to PR at the company, they'll they'll escalate it because that seems to be good, free, easy press. Yeah. Well, awesome. Those are our questions from the crowd. Thank you to everybody who has written in with some questions. And now I know uh, Valentina wants to wrap us up. Before we do so, uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, Brian, about business education. How does it fit into startup environment? Hmm. You got your MBA from University of North Carolina, Canon Flagler Business School. And uh, I think these debates are going on all the time. The key point is that business school teaches you how to fit into corporate environment and MBA is not what entrepreneurs should do. What's your take on that? I think my take is what you just said. Um, I think think if you are considering going to business school to be an entrepreneur, I think you should take every dollar that you were going to spend at business school and start a company. Whoa. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that that's like a no brainer to me. I really enjoyed business school. I traveled a lot. I met some really nice people from a entrepreneurship standpoint. It just pushed me back two years. It was just a waste. I won't say a waste because I really like the people at North Carolina. And I think that there were some valuable things. Were I to do it again, I would just start a company Um, Mm. or like work at a startup or do something. I think that I think that that might be a little harsh. I think there are a lot of things that you can learn. And certainly I went to business school in 2011. Maybe they're much, much better now on entrepreneurship stuff. Oh, um, they're trying. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but, but at, I'm, I'm old. But at the same time, there's, uh, I just like theory versus practice. If you have the option of like theory versus practice, always practice. And I don't think you practice at business school. I think it's, it's make believe. Um, hmm. So Okay. And before uh, you started Tacklebox, you had a couple of other businesses before, but I'm curious, what's next? It's interesting. So there, there are a couple options with Tacklebox. I could raise a fund, which I think is interesting. I want to expand and do a lot more virtual stuff for people who aren't in New York. And that's really interesting to me. And I'll probably, I will definitely pursue that. I also have an idea in the mental health space, which uh, I'm really interested in, which I've been sort of messing around with on the side, which is basically, I think that founders, particularly founders, but but young people in general, are sort of being thrown into a very stressful life. And there aren't a lot of, I think there are processes that can really help on the mental health side and practices that you can implement. So I'm toying around with some stuff in that space. Hmm, interesting. Good luck with all your endeavors. Thank you. Nice. And that's a wrap for the show this week. You were listening to the Pod Bites. I'm Valentina Kaladina, and here also was Ariel Nissenblatt. Bye, we everybody. Were... Thanks for tuning in. And we were joined by Brian Scordato. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a, this is a blast. Amazing. Thanks, everyone, for listening and asking questions. And please make sure you subscribe to the show. You can click on the show picture. There is a follow button. Please make sure you click it so you will receive push notification when we will go live next time. And you can see the upcoming live shows on the livecast page of CastBox. Use the app, call in, ask questions, and interact with your favorite hosts. Now you can find PodBytes on other platforms like iTunes or whatever else you use to get your podcasts. We are going to have a break, but we will be back soon. Our next season will have more amazing guests and more inspiring topics. Stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.